The title of our lesson is One Foot in the Grave. One Foot in the Grave. Years ago, I was uh, studying for a message, and I ran across uh, an epitaph on a tombstone. Uh, it was supposedly a, a tombstone in Indiana. It was probably 100, 150 years old, and it said this on the guy's tombstone. It says, Paul, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. Um, what was funny about it is that somebody had left a note on the thing. It says, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> I guess they had just scribbled it on there. there. There's something, and we've mentioned this before, there's always something about a graveyard, of course, that makes you think about death, right? You can't not, if you go to a funeral or you go to a, a cemetery to visit a a loved one's grave, you can't help not think about it because that epitaph was 100% true. The guy said, as I am now, so you will be. We're going to die. Uh, every one of us in here is, is going to die. At the same time, it's my contention, you really shouldn't wait. We shouldn't wait until we get in a graveyard to think about death. In fact, I believe we should think about it regularly and we should think about it uh, often. Now, just as a little fun, I went out to Google, and I, I Googled thinking about death. That's all I put in, thinking about death. And it popped up, and it had all these articles on depression and anxiety, and I even found there's something called thanatophobia, which is an extreme fear of death. And that's the kind of things that, that popped up. You see, for the world, thinking about death is a mental condition. right? If you think too much about death, if you were to think about it on a daily basis, they'd say, well, you've got, you're clinically depressed or you've got anxiety or you maybe have some kind of, kind of phobia. But for us, it shouldn't be like that at all, not for Christians. In fact, thinking about death should be a good thing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, think about it for a minute. What does death mean for us? It means real life finally begins. It means joy. It means no more pain. It means no more suffering. It means eternal, I mean, it, it's like Christmas, right? I mean, there's, it's not a bad thing for us. It's a, it's a good thing. But there's one very practical reason for us to think about death on a regular basis. It is that it, it causes us to evaluate things in this life more clearly. When you think about death and you think about what's on the other side of death, it allows us to look at things in this life from a very practical perspective. What's eternal and what's temporary? What's eternal and what's temporary? Are the things that I'm doing, spending my money on, spending my time on, my relationships, do they have eternal value or are they just temporary things? And keeping death in mind helps us evaluate what things are really significant. Now, for those of us that are older in here, you, you'll understand exactly what I'm about to say. And that is age, old age, which basically in a nutshell means being closer to death than you were the day before, has a way of helping you see things in a different perspective. Yes or no? The older you get, the more you see things differently than you did 10 years before or 20 years before or 25. And nothing helps you have a completely different viewpoint on life than having one foot in the grave. And in other words, being very close to death. All of a sudden, when you're very close to death, you're looking back over your life 
and everything. That's a, that's a perspective that you've never had before. Now, we're going to see this illustrated in today's lesson or in today's passage. Between chapters 47 and 48, 17 years have passed. Jacob has been in, uh, in, in Egypt with Joseph for 17 years. And 17 years previously, he had come to Egypt and he had went, before, went into the palace and he stood before Pharaoh. And this is, these are his words. He says, I'm 130 years old and the days of my life have been few and evil. If you want to know what my life is like, he said, I'm 130 years old and, and my life has been short and sour. That was his, that was his testimony of, of his life. Now, today, as we come to chapter 48, he is literally, like I said, Jacob's been dying for years, but now he's literally got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. He is really, really close. And what we're going to see is that his testimony is completely different. It's a testimony of faith, and it's a testimony of gratitude. Now, you may say, well, okay, 17 years have gone by. Well, how do you explain this change in perspective? How do you uh, explain this change in, in attitude? Well, there you go. His perspective has changed. You see, he's now not 17 years from the end of his life. He is at the end of his life. He knows it, his death is very very close. And now he's looking back over his life. He, there's no more to look ahead. There's no more. When he looks ahead, he sees there's nothing there. So his perspective is completely looking back over his, his uh, life. Now you may say, well, what does Jacob's story have to do with us today? Well, I'm going to read Colossians, 1, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 3 to you. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Set your mind, if you are a Christian, if you have been raised with Christ, he says, set your mind, your perspective should be eternal. Your perspective should be beyond this life, look into an eternal perspective, not on things that are on this, this earth. Now, that command, folks, is written to people that are 18 as well as 81. You see, it's easy to have that perspective when you're 81 or you're 85 or you're 92. You're, you're getting near the end. Your perspective changes. But what about when you're 18 or 25 or 32? It's not so easy because you've got this whole life ahead of you. But my thing is you shouldn't have to wait until you've got one foot in the grave to have that proper perspective. You shouldn't have to wait until you got one foot in the grave to realize what things are really important in this life and what things are of, of little value. In other words, you and I shouldn't have to be at death's door to have the same perspective that Jacob does. So what we want to try to do today is grasp the reasons for his perspective and apply them to our life today. Take the perspective of a man who's at death's door and say, I want to live the rest of my life with that perspective. Are you with me? So we're going to see what kind of lessons we can learn from this chapter. Uh, let's begin in Genesis 48. We'll start in verses 1 through 2. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in bed. So again, 
Jacob's been dying for years, but now it is really close. He's ill, he's sick, everybody can tell this is, this is not going to be good. So they call Joseph and says, your father's sick. Joseph goes to see him one final time, and he takes with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who were born there uh, in Egypt. Verse 3 through 4. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." Now, Jacob repeats this promise that by the time, by now we've heard this promise hundreds of times, haven't we? God appeared to Abraham, God appeared to Isaac, and now God has appeared to Jacob. And he basically says, I'm going to make you two promises, okay? The first is you're going to become a great nation. Your descendants are going to be a multitude of peoples. That's number one. And number two, you will possess the land of, of Canaan. That will become your land. I'm giving that land to you. I still, even when I read this, you know, you understand this is 4,000, 5,000 years ago, whatever it is, and today we can see this promise has come true. They possess the land of Israel. They are, they are a multitude of peoples all over the world. I mean, this, we literally can open our newspapers and see the, the fulfillment of this promise even today. So he's, he says, okay, God has promised me these two things. But now it's time for him to die. And what he wants to do is he wants to pass this inheritance down. He wants to pass these promises down. Again, Abraham passed them down to Isaac. Isaac passed them down to Jacob. And now Jacob wants to pass them down in the proper way. And that is what his next words are all about. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Okay, now that's key. Your two sons, he says, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. What he's saying is they'll be my sons just like my regular sons. I'll treat them, I'll act as if they were born directly to me. And the children that you father after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. So, Remember, Joseph's sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, were born in the land of Egypt. And as sons of Joseph, remember, Joseph is second in command, right? He's the vice president of Egypt. As sons of Joseph, their future is pretty much set, right? They're going to go to Harvard and Yale and all the nice schools, and, and, and they're going to go right into a nice, cushy government job. And they're, I mean, they're, they're ready to go. See, their future is very bright, uh, in Egypt, but that's not to be, okay? Their destiny lies in a land they've never even been to. The de- their descendants' destiny lies in a land that they've never even been to. So what Jacob wants to do is he says, okay, I'm going to adopt you as my own. That's exactly what he's doing. He's taking Joseph's two sons and he says, I'm adopting them as my own. Now, why would he do that? Well, next week... We're going to see jo- Jacob finally die. And right before he dies, he speaks to, he prophesies over each of his sons. And what he's going to do is he's going to strip the birthright. Now, in that day, the firstborn son had something called the birthright, which means you got, you basically became the leader of the family and you got a double portion of the inheritance. 
Okay, that's basically what a birthright meant. You became, you stepped up when your father died and you became, it was a patriarchal society, you became the leader of your family and you got a double portion. You got a double portion of any inheritance of land or money or any of that kind of thing. Reuben is going to be stripped of his birthright. Why? Because way back in chapter 35, he slept with his stepmother. He went into Bilhah, who was Jacob's concubine. Now, he doesn't know it yet, but you'll see next week he's going to be stripped of that birthright. Now, normally, when that happens, for some reason, when the first son is stripped of the birthright, then the birthright would go to the next son, right? He would just go down the, the line. In, in this case, Simeon, or maybe the third son, who would be Levi. But both of those boys were guilty of mass murder. If you go back to chapter 34, they, they deceived the men of Shechem uh, when they raped their, their sister Dinah, and they killed all the men in the city. Even There was only one man that committed the rape. They killed them all. And, and they were guilty of mass murder. So Jacob doesn't want them to have anything to do with the birthright. He doesn't, he doesn't feel they're worthy. So he does something very unusual. He's going to give the rights of the firstborn to Joseph, but he's going to do it through Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In fact, one of, this re- one of the reasons this is written, have I, I've mentioned to you all before, when you go look at the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph is not listed, okay? Which is kind of this odd thing. This chapter is really written to explain why Joseph doesn't have a tribe and his two sons do. In other words, Joseph is going to get the birthright and he's going to get a double inheritance through his sons. And we'll see that here. Now, this is all explained, by the way, in 1 Chronicles 5.12, where, you know, we don't get a lot of explanation in this chapter, but 1 Chronicles says this, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, or he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son, And then it goes on down and says, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Does everybody see that? He wants the birthright to go to Joseph, but he's doing it through the two sons. Okay? So how's he going to achieve this purpose? Well, the way he achieves this is by adopting these two boys as his own, equal with Reuben and Simeon. So each of them is going to receive one portion and then Joseph, as their father, basically receives a double portion. By the way, I'm a, I'm a father of two sons. And I can tell you, if somebody came to me and says, I'm going to give you... If you've got children, you know you are so blessed when people do things for your children. Just like they're doing them for you. Yes? It wouldn't bother me a thing in the world. He said, I'm going to give my inheritance to my boys. I'd be like, that's, that's awesome. That's great. Right? I think Joseph exactly the same way. Yes, that's the way to, you know, that's the way to go. So the effect here, by giving these inheritance to these two boys and adopting them, the effect is giving the birthright to Joseph. And then any other sons that Joseph have become, he, he said it in that chapter, they would receive their inheritance as if they were the sons of either Ephraim or Manasseh. Now, why would Jacob do this? Why would he reach all the way? You know, he goes from one, no, you're out of here. You slept with my concubine. Number two and three, no, you're out of here because you're mass murderers. Why does he skip four and five and six and seven and eight and nine? Why does he reach all the way down to number 11 to pass on the birthright? Well, I think verse seven tells us this. 
Jacob says this, As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob had, we all know he had four wives, but he loved uh, Rachel, right? She was, his, uh, she was his favorite. She was his wife or bride of choice. The others got kind of put on him and he didn't know how to deal with the situation, but he, she was the one that he loved. So he was always partial to her sons or the children that she uh, produced. First was Joseph and then, of course, was Benjamin. So he, I think, this, jo- Joseph was always his favorite. And so he reaches all the way down to the 11th son and says, I'm going to give him the birthright. Now, that was his reasoning, but you've got to also remember a couple things. First of all, Jacob, um, Joseph deserved it, right? He was the son. He may not have been the, the first in order, but he was definitely the first in godliness. He was definitely the first in righteousness. He deserved it, right? So that's one, another reason. The other reason, of course, is the sovereignty of God. It's exactly what God wanted to happen and it did. Verse 8. So when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? So for some reason, he's, he started talking to Joseph. He hasn't, either he hasn't noticed those two boys in the room because he can't see worth anything. He's blind as a bat at this point. And, uh, or maybe they hadn't quite come in the room yet. We don't, you know, we don't know. Whatever the case, he seizes the moment and says, Okay, I'm going to bless these boys. Look at verses 9 through 12. And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold God has let me see your offspring or has let me see my grandsons. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, there's something a little bit tricky here. It says Joseph removed them from his, from his knees. I don't, it, I, that language almost makes it sound like they're toddlers, doesn't it? Sounds like, okay, he took them off his knees. But these boys aren't toddlers. They were born in the seven years of plenty. We know that Jacob came to Israel somewhere, um, to Egypt somewhere around the second year of famine, and he's been there 17 years. So these boys have got to be 20 years old. They may be 19, they may be 21, but they're somewhere around 20 years old. So I'm not sure what that expression means, but these boys are not toddlers. They are, they, are young, they are young men. Verse 13, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them uh, near him. So Joseph knows that his father is about to bless him. And blessings always involve the laying on of hands. He knows his father is going to put his hands on him. So he arranges them properly for the blessing. And so what he does, he takes Manasseh, who's the oldest, and he positions him over here. And as he walks up, that would be on Jacob's right hand. Everybody with me? And he takes Ephraim, who is the youngest, and he puts him over here so that he would be at uh, Jacob's left hand. Now, why does he do that? Because, and we don't have time today, we won't do it in this study, but if you ever do a study in the Bible of the right hand, the right hand is a symbol of power, it's a symbol of love, it's a symbol of blessing. Jesus is not seated at the left hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God for a reason, because it's symbolic of love and blessing and, and sovereignty and, and all of those things. And so he wants Jacob to lay his right hand 
on his oldest son, who is Manasseh. Verse 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And his left hand he put on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So Jacob kind of throws a, a wrench into it. Instead of putting his hand straight out, he crosses his hands, puts his right hand on the younger, puts his left hand on the older. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God... And I want you to listen. This is really what this lesson is about, is the words right now that come out of his mouth. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, you'll notice at the beginning of that passage, his blessing is, is primarily a blessing on Joseph, right? It says that. He's blessing Joseph, but he's doing it through his sons. But his, the important thing about this blessing is it contains his testimony. And this testimony is a, in stark contrast to the one that he gave 17 years ago when he came into uh, uh, Pharaoh's palace. Now he says, basically what he's saying, the Lord has been my shepherd all my days. Now how can, he, how can he go 17 years ago from saying my life has been short and sour, full of evil, and now 17 years later he says, you know what, the Lord has been my shepherd every day of, of my life. You see, Jacob doesn't deny his sufferings, and I won't list them again but, but the man had a hard life, right? We, we went through him a couple weeks ago. He was brought up in a home where his, his father uh, loved his brother more than him. His mother loved him. They were divided. He was split up from his family. He was exiled into another land. It just goes on and on and on. Jacob doesn't deny any of that. But now, at this end of his life, he sees everything in a different light. His perspective has completely changed. He's come to understand a great truth. You know, Psalm 23 tells us that our shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures, yes? But it also says that he, he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not always green pastures. Sometimes it's the valley of the shadow of death. But he's still with us. He's still walking uh, with us. But here's the thing, and I just love this statement. And you want to talk about a statement that shows a perspective that has changed. He says, he has redeemed me from all evil. Now let me tell you, that word redeem means to buy back something, to, to purchase something or to reclaim something. The idea is, is something is on the junk pile. It's been thrown in a landfill and you redeem it. You, you buy it back and you make something beautiful out of it. Jacob said, he has redeemed all the evil that has happened to me. You see, at the end of his life, Jacob has finally come to see that every event in his life was a part of the will of God. Everything that happened to him was a part of the will of God. That all the things that happened to him, God was there, not just walking through it with him, but actually using it for his own purposes, shaping him, molding him, making him into who he wanted him to be. I couldn't help but think, I wanted to stop here real quickly. There's, a, there's an awesome scripture in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You guys are all aware of it. 
I was reading it the other day in a... Does everybody know the... There are, there are Bibles out there that are not translations, they're paraphrases. The Message Bible. Any of you ever read the Message Bible? Okay, the Message Bible is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. Somebody read a scripture and they thought, well, this sounds good. And they, that's what they put out there. I was reading a, a paraphrased Bible and I noticed something was, I thought, well, something's wrong with that. That doesn't sound right. So I went back to the King James, the ESV, and some of the better. This is from the ESV. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the ways of escape. That's where that message Bible stops, right there. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. That's, something's missing. And I went back, and it had left off this last, that you may be able to... What? Endure it. See, we got this idea that no temptation's too much, that he's going to give us a way to get out of it. That's not what it says. He's going to give you a way to endure it, to go through it. That's a big difference right there. You see, no Christian has ever been promised the absence of trouble. No Christian's ever been promised that. And, and when we're young and immature, let's be honest, we shun suffering, don't we? We, we, we pray, God, lead me not into temptation, <laughs> please. I just can't handle that kind of stuff. I'm not good with pain. I'm not good with suffering. That, that's some evil stuff. Leave, keep that away from me, right? But you see, the mature Christian understands that God redeems suffering. He redeems the bad things that happen to you. He doesn't just let it happen to you. He takes it and says, okay, I'm going to use this to make you better. I'm going to use this to make you more like my son. I'm going to use this to make something beautiful out of your life. Listen, nobody seeks it. Nobody's going to walk out here and say, yeah, man, let's go find some suffering, right? I mean, who? We, you would have a mental condition if you were doing that kind of thing, right? But as Christians, one of the things we can appreciate when it happens is how beautifully God uses it to bring us into an intimacy with himself. You all know it's true. When the good, good times, if you just had good times after good times, you would just drift and drift and drift and drift. It's in the hard times. It's in the pain, the suffering, the adversity when you run to God, when you run to that strong tower. That's that. If you saw good, you would just drift away. I'm sorry. That's just the way it works. So what God allows suffering and adversity and pain to come into your life to draw you back to Him. That's just the way it is, right? In fact, listen, when no, do you understand that knowing God is the ultimate good in this life? There's nothing better than that. And if that's true, there shouldn't be any price too high to obtain it. Paul said this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. You want to become more like Christ? Let me tell you what it happens through adversity. It happens through testing. It happens through pain. It happens through uh, suffering. Let's read verses 17 and 18. So when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. So Joseph sees his father crossing his hands and he's thinking, man, he's blind as a bat. I got to go, 
I got to go help him, right? So he, he tries to take his hands and he tries to move them and he assumes it's a mistake, but it's not a mistake. Verse 19 and 20, but his father refused and he said, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a great people. And nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring, offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now, the book of Genesis, if we've seen anything in our study over the last year of half, and a half, is God constantly chooses the younger over the older. He chose Seth over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. That's at least four cases right there. And now he chooses Ephraim over Manasseh. Well, why? Well, once again, it's the principle of election. God chooses. We see it over and over and over again. There is no earthly reason why Ephraim should have been placed above Manasseh. No reason whatsoever. And this is why, by the way, Jacob's actions have great meaning because this is not an earthly decision. You see, society had concluded early on that it's always the older that gets the privilege. It's always the oldest that gets the birthright. And that's how you were supposed to do things. Well, let me tell you, God is not bound by our conventions. We need to just get that right out of our head right now. God is not bound by our societal conventions. You cannot put God in a box and say, God, you've got to always act the way according to these rules that we've set up. Psalms 115.3 says our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he wants to do. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he wants to, to do. Verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and I will bring you again and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Of all these verses, verses 22 is a very difficult verse to uh, interpret. If you go back and you read through Genesis, there's never an instance where uh, Jacob actually fought with the Amorites and took property from them. There's a place where he bought property, if you'll remember, but never a place where he actually uh, fought uh, with the Amorites to, to, to do property. In Genesis 15, there's a prophecy, and it says this. The Lord said to Abram, this is before Jacob's even, even born, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And they shall come back here to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that is a very interesting statement. He says, I'm going to send you all to Egypt, and you're going to stay in Egypt for 400 years. And the time will come where the Amorites, the Canaanites, their iniquity is not complete. They're not as bad as they could be. But there's coming a time where they're going to be, their iniquity will be complete. Their sin will be complete. And it'll be time for them to go. And when that happens, I will bring you out of Egypt and I will, you will take possession of the promised land and you will throw the Amorites out. So many of the commentators believe here that Jacob is speaking prophetically. He's saying, you know what? I bought a piece of land in Shechem. It's still there, right? It's still back in Canaan. And here we are in Egypt. 
But the time is coming when you're going to go back and you'll take that land by force. So it's a prophetic word uh, that they will fulfill at some point in the future. Now I want to close with this. Out of all the events in Jacob's life, if you go to, and we've talked about this a couple times, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith, and it lists all these great men and women of God and the things that they did. If you go, Jacob is listed there, and of all the things in his life, the author of Hebrews uses this as an example of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty one. it says this, By faith Jacob, as he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph. So this chapter today, somewhere in the future, the author of Hebrews will look back and says, boy, that's faith. That is faith. Now you've got to ask that question, why? What, what does he see in this blessing that he sees as such a great example of faith? I mean, it seems almost, almost kind of obvious, doesn't it, that he would... Oh, I really like jo- Joseph, and so I'm going to give the birthright to him through his sons, and we're going, to, we're going to move this thing down. But the author of Hebrews says, no, he looks back and says, boy, that was faith. Now, why? Why is that faith? Remember, God has appeared to Jacob twice, and he's promised him two things, right? Number one, you're going to get the promised land. Number two, you're going to become a great people, a great nation, multitudes of nations even. Those are the two promises. Right, But Jacob has been on this earth for 147 years and he hadn't seen any of it. Right? There's 70 of them, the Bible tells us, that went into Egypt. 70 people. That ain't a multitude of nations. That ain't a multitude of people, right? In fact, not only are they, has he not seen it, they've actually gone backwards because they're not in the land of Canaan anymore. At least 17 years ago, he was in the promised land. Now he's not even there. There's not a single Hebrew in the promised land right now. They're all up in Egypt, okay? But Jacob blessed his grandsons believing that God would keep his promises through them. Let me tell you, folks, that's faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jacob is blessing those boys. He's saying, I'm here in Egypt. There's not a single Hebrew in Canaan, but one day. One day, God is going to fulfill it through you. He's going to fulfill those promises. Let me tell you, that almost gives me chill bumps because that is faith. He had nothing visually to base that on. Nothing. He's not even in the land of Canaan anymore. And yet he says, God will do it through these boys. And the author of Hebrews looks back and says, that's faith. You want to know what faith is? That's faith. And in this act of faith, one of the most beautiful things about this to me is in this act of faith, we see Jacob giving his grandsons the most important thing he could ever give them, and that is faith in the promises of God. He is passing down a godly heritage. He is passing down the most important thing he could ever pass down to those boys. And, I, and there's three things I think we can learn from, this, from Jacob passing down these promises, passing down this inheritance or imparting a godly heritage. Three things. Number one, we give a godly heritage by taking spiritual concern not only for our children, but for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. I don't think as Christians, and I don't think we can just say, well, you know, I did the best I could with my kids, now the grandkids is up to them. I don't think you can do that. 
I just don't see that. I think you still have a responsibility to pass a godly heritage down to your grandchildren, and if you're blessed to do it, even to your great-grandchildren. You watch Jacob with his grandsons. He calls them in, and he draws them to himself, and it goes out of his way to says he kisses them, and he hugs them, he embraces them. You don't have to read between the lines to feel what he feels, do you? He's like, man, I, I never even thought I'd see Joseph, and now I'm, 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 I've got these two grandsons that I'm holding in my, in my arms. Through his words, through his expression, through his touch, Jacob makes these boys feel loved. And I think we have to take that concern for our grandchildren. Take that godly heritage, wrap it up in love, and pass it on to our descendants. Number two, we give a godly heritage by recounting our own experiences with God. Listen, I know the devil may sit on your shoulder and say, those kids don't care whatever happened to you. You ignore that and you tell those kids what happened to you. You tell who God has been in your life, how he's walked through you, uh, walked as a shepherd through your life, how he has redeemed the evil in your life. You need to pass that on. Notice that's what Jacob does. He recalls, man, God appeared to me. God made these promises to me. He expressed his gratitude to God that I'm able to actually see you, you boys. And then when he's blessing them, he recounts God's faithfulness. He recounts God's goodness. In the same way, we are to tell our children, we are to tell our grandchildren, and if if possible, even our great-grandchildren, what God has done for us. Number three... We give a godly heritage by stating our hopes for their future in the Lord. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. As I read this, I couldn't help but think of those boys' mother. Do you remember their mother is the daughter of an Egyptian priest? Y'all remember that? She is complete Egyptian. She's not a Hebrew. And she comes from a well-known family, a prosperous family, right? And I literally think, you remember, Egyptians hated Hebrews. They detested them, right? Now, she's married to one, and so she knows her sons are are half Hebrew. But I think, you know, she would have been horrified to think that you're going to go over there to the land of Goshen, and you're going to, you know, you're going to get involved with all these Hebrews and and identify with them. That That would have horrified her. I could have seen her saying, you're, you're going to throw your career away in Egypt for what? For them? But you see, by faith, Jacob pictures for those grandsons a future where they're identified with the people of God. You see, I think we need to do that for our grandchildren and our children, is we need to, by faith, envision a future for them identified with the covenant people of God. We need to picture for our children a greater purpose than just, you know, listen, I know how easy it is to get called up. I've been through all this, but we look at our children and think, boy, I got to get them into college and they got to get a good job and they got to do this and they got to be a success and all this. And, and, and yeah, we'll go to church on Sunday. No, God, godly success is everything. That stuff is just temporary. It's just temporary. But being identified with the covenant, there's people of God, there's nothing more important than that. There's no price we shouldn't be willing to pay to make sure that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren are Christians, that they are identified with the covenant people of God. That is the only way we ever truly 
bless our children. We need to give our children a vision for the coming kingdom. You see, in a lot of ways, we're like Jacob. We're not there yet. We're not in the promised land, but it's coming. And the words you say, the truths you teach, the values you live, they say everything to your children and grandchildren. Do you really believe that we're going to a promised land? Do you really believe that there's a promised land out there, granddaddy? Do you really believe that everything you say and do is teaching them? And we need to give them a vision through our truths that we teach, through the values that we live, through the love that we give. Yes, I believe it, and I want you to believe it too. Next week, we turn to Genesis 49. Um, Real quickly, kind of an odd chapter. You know, we've already decided here in this class we don't like genealogies, right? I've heard that plenty of times. Um, but there's a, next week, there's going to be a bunch of prophecies over these sons. And you may think, look, if you go read it, you're going to think, man, what has this got to do with me? This, you know, this is just a bunch of prophecies to a bunch of old people, you know, 4,000 years ago. Got nothing to do with me. No, it's got everything to do with you. And, and in fact, we'll look next week at Genesis 49 and we'll talk about the purpose of prophecy. Let's pray. Father.